0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 11, starting in verse 29. Judges, chapter 11, starting in verse 29. Hear now the word of our God. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as abel Keramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes, and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, "'Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire.' And Jephthah said to them, "'I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand.' And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died, and was buried at Bethlehem. After him Elon the Zebulunite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulunite died, and was buried at Ijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him Abdon the son of Hillel the Pirathonite judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons, who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathenite, died and was buried at Perathon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. This is the word of the Lord. Last time we heard the, the story of Jephthah's rise, the Ammonites were oppressing Israel, especially the region of Gilead on the east side of the Jordan. But they also had crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, Bethlehem, and Ephraim. And when Israel admitted their idolatry and in turning to other gods, God's response to them was to say, Well, if you prefer other gods, let them save you in the time of your distress. And there's no mention of the Lord raising up a deliverer. Instead, the people of Gilead go out to find their own deliverer. And as we saw, Jephthah makes an interesting choice. He's, in some respects, like Gideon, he's described as a mighty warrior. Like Gideon, he begins as a nobody and winds up as a tyrant. Both are clothed with the spirit of the Lord in order to defeat their enemies. Both wind up in a conflict with Ephraim after their victory. Both wind up brutalizing not only the enemy, but also their fellow Israelites. So there are ways in which Jephthah is like Gideon, but there's other ways in which Jephthah is like Abimelech. Both are born outside of proper wedlock. Both surround themselves with worthless men. Both are opportunists who negotiate themselves into leadership positions. Both slaughter their own relatives. But unlike Abimelech, Jephthah is also a deliverer. As we've seen when when it talks about saving Israel, he's a deliverer whom Yahweh uses to save his people. As we keep seeing, God uses the weak and the foolish to accomplish his purposes. Now, as we saw last time, Jephthah also knows the scriptures. He knows the story of redemption. He, he show in his dialogue and communication with the, the Ammonites, he's the one who says, yeah, it was the Lord who gave Sihon and all his people into the land, into the hand of, of Israel. It was the Lord who dispossessed the Amorites. And Jephthah had appealed to the Lord to uh, decide, decide the case. And so, not surprisingly, the Ammonites refused to listen and so jephthah begins to head towards the ammonite border now it's only at that point that the spirit of the lord came upon jephthah and it's worth noting that among the prior judges only otniel and gideon shared this gift and when the spirit of the lord is poured out the people flock to the banner of the judge from gilead and manasseh the people of israel come to him and he leads them against the ammonites but then Jephthah makes this vow. And he says, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, the the text uses a, a sort of a more neuter, neuter, but it's more naturally whoever, and I will offer him up for a burnt offering. It makes it sound like he's expecting a person to be the one. The, the structure of the vow is very typical of Old Testament vows. If you do what I ask, then I will do something for you. And they, in fact, the first line is very much the same as Numbers 21, verse 2, where Israel vowed to devote to destruction the cities of the Canaanites. But the second part is very different. Instead of offering cities to devote to destruction, he vows a free will offering of whatever or whoever comes from his gate. Now, it was the custom in those days when the general comes home from battle victorious; for it was the custom for his household to come out and greet him. So Jeff expects that the first to come out of his house would be a human. And yes, this means that Jephthah is intending human sacrifice. Now, we rightly ask, how can this be? God explicitly forbade human sacrifice. How can a judge who is, you know, filled with the holy, you know, clothed with the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit is upon him? How can he vow to do something contrary to what God has said? Well, as we keep seeing, our, our judges at this time are only barely Yahweh worshipers, I mean, as we saw with Gideon. Gideon's father was a Baal worshiper, and what does it mean that your father is a Baal worshiper? Well, it means that when, they ha- when he has a sacrifice to Baal, his son's going to be there. I mean, there's no hint that Gideon had was sort of in a different. Yeah, that's so. Th- we've got a Baal worshiper for one judge. We've got, uh, as we'll see with Samson, <laughs> he's got a whole set of problems. But this is our judges are not exactly uh, squeaky clean when it comes to their character. Israel is not doing well at obeying God, and in the and in the surrounding culture, human sacrifice was it it it's not it doesn't happen every day it's actually in one sense you might say rare but widespread so it's infrequently practiced but it's 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 a well-known custom that would have been done throughout the, the 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 canaanite world it seems to have been thought of as a sort of substitutionary ritual where the sacrifice dies in the place of the one who offers him or her it's It's often in the context of battle where the the sacrifice dies as a part of a vow asking the deity to give victory. So in one sense, this would be something that he would have picked up from the surrounding culture. It's something that he would have been familiar with as a at least occasional practice in the world around him. And that's why, to make sense of this story, we need to both read the story forwards as well as backwards. I mean, there's... We read this story backwards in the light of the cross. We who have the full revelation of the Old and New Testaments can see how the whole story points to Christ. But part of the point of the book of Judges is to show us God's mercy to his people in a time where everything is upside down. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Oh, sure, Jephthah knows the story of Deuteronomy. Now, did he actually know the laws? Who was teaching God's law in Jephthah's day? Were the priests and Levites teaching faithfully? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wouldn't bank on it. Was anybody actually going to the tabernacle for the feasts? We have no indication that they were. How many generations passed without clear teaching, without somebody saying, here's what God says. Judges tells us the people of Israel did not drive out the nations. Instead, they intermarried and interworshipped with the people of the land. Israel's ethics and religion was not characterized by the Mosaic Law, but by the practices and beliefs of their neighbors. So, uh, when I read this week, as one modern scholar said, there is evidence that until about the 7th and 6th centuries BCE, human sacrifice was an acceptable part of Israelite and Judean religion. That's probably true. Now, let's be clear. It was not part of Mosaic religion. It was not part of what God had approved of and told them to do. But it was part of Israelite religion. Just like I've often mentioned the the, the, the inscription they found of Yahweh and his Asherah. But then again, from the book of Judges and the book of Samuel and the book of Kings, we know clearly that the Israelites were syncretists they were blending what Moses told them to do with the nations around them. So we should expect to find lots of evidence for Israelites engaging in human sacrifice, idolatrous worship, Baal worship, Asherah worship, saying that Yahweh has a a female goddess who this is all, to us we're sort of like, that's crazy. For them, this, I mean, this is what the Bible tells us they were doing. It's what we should expect to find in the archaeological record. In fact, if you take the word of God seriously, you should expect to find almost no examples of pure and faithful Yahweh worship in the archaeological record. Because the heroes of Israelite faith in the time of the judges are a Baal worshiper... <laughs> One who uh, involves in human sacrifice, an adulterer. Where is your faithful leader who's actually teaching and demonstrating here's what God says? Nobody. Now, we might hope that among the among the ordinary folk, we might hope that there were some. But that's pure speculation on our parts, not substantiated by the word of God. Where do you find the faithful? Gone is the faithful from the earth. And yet, in the midst of this utter misery and depravity, God still saves his people. He gives Jephthah the victory. He struck 20 cities and subdued the Ammonites. As we saw last time, this was a major victory. Up until this point, Israel had not done any major incursions into foreign territory. Now, not only have they protected their own territory, they've knocked out 20 cities of the Ammonites and subdued them. The Lord gave them into Jephthah's hand. But then Jephthah came home to Mizpah. After victory in battle, what happens? Well, Exodus 15, the women come out with tambourines and sing and dance. Later in 1 Samuel, the same thing happens after David's victories. Here is the first great victory in Israelite history. And what do we see? A solitary figure. Teenage girl dancing at the return of her father. Now, there may have been others, but our text zeroes in on the first one out the door. She's the only one that matters, because he had said, "Whoever's the first one out. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. We keep hearing about all of these judges with 70 sons or 30 sons or 40 sons and 30 grandsons. And here's a judge who's got no sons. Only a single daughter. In, in a way, verse 34 invites us to consider the parallel with Genesis 22, the, the offering of Isaac. But like everything else in Judges, there's, there's lots of parallels between stories in Genesis and stories in Judges. And one of the themes that keep, continues throughout all these parallels is, in Genesis, it is God who takes the initiative and there's blessing that comes at the end of the story. In Judges, God is silent. Man takes the initiative And everything ends in disaster and tragedy. Because while God's test of Abraham results in the confirmation of Abraham's faith, it confirms the presence and faithfulness of God and results in the oath that assured the future of Abraham and his seed. Jephthah's test of God results in the confirmation of Jephthah's faithlessness. It confirms the silence and withdrawal of God and results in the abrupt end of Jephthah's line. With the death of his daughter, his only child, the line of Jephthah is cut off from the earth. There are several parallels between Genesis and Judges, but all of them end like this one. Jephthah is no Abraham. Now, what is remarkable is that Jephthah's daughter is a very... You ask where are the faithful in Israel? (laughs) She said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. She is, she, she she says, do to me what you've said. You like, it's, it's, you think back to Isaac, sort of, when Isaac, well, where's is the ram? <laughs> the Lord will provide the ram, my son. And when Abraham comes at Isaac with the night, Isaac doesn't seem to be the one that flinches. In the same way, Jephthah's daughter says, "Let you know, just all I ask is give me two months that I may go up and down in the mountains and weep for my virginity." And so he says go and she does this in fact the the commemoration that's referred to in verses 39 and 40 may actually be referred to in psalm 78 when it says that he gave his people over to the sword invented his wrath on his heritage fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song certainly Abimelech's burning of the tower of shechem would count for the fire and jephthah's daughter would count for the daughter who has no marriage song now, some have tried to soften the implication of verse 39. He did with her according to his vow. They suggest that he simply dedicated her to a life of virginity. But why would you establish a custom of lamenting the fact that a woman remained a virgin all her life? It, it doesn't work. And actually, it, the early fathers comment on this passage frequently, and there's, they, they agree. He did what he said he was going to do he offers her as a a human sacrifice, which is completely contrary to God's word. Now, one might ask, well, what what should he have done? Well, in one sense, he never should have made the vow because he knows full well it'll be a human being comes out of his house. But Numbers 30 verse 2 says that if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. Jephthah believed that his vow required him to sacrifice his daughter. You might call it a perverse sort of biblicism here. Yeah, Because if he had left his vow unfulfilled, then the curse would have fallen upon him. Now, there was another option. Leviticus 27 provides a valuation system for what to do if a vow involves a person. So Jephthah could have paid the fine for his foolish vow. Now, either he's unaware of this or else he's simply thinking and acting more like a Canaanite than an Israelite. And this is at the heart of what Judges is telling us. Israel is becoming more and more like the Canaanites. Even their judges, even their heroes of the faith are deeply flawed. And we see here, the the seed of Abraham is falling apart. Even this spirit-anointed warrior is acting more like a Canaanite than an Israelite, offering his only child as a perverse sacrifice. We need a king who will not be like the nations around us. Now, Note that with the death of his daughter, Jephthah's line is effectively ended. He has no future. But our story isn't over yet. Uh, Like Gideon, Jephthah makes enemies even in victory. Ephraim once again complains. We've we've heard this as a refrain now in Judges. In chapter 8, the Ephraimites complained that they weren't included in the battle against Midian, now they object to Jephthah leaving them out of the fight and threatened to burn his house down. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure Jephthah's like, my house is already burned down. My daughter is as good as dead. There will be no descendants of Jephthah. There's a way in which, whether Ephraim knows about the vow or not, they're really just rubbing it in. Twice now, Ephraim has been ungrateful and arrogant toward deliverers. Uh, and... Ephraim will be the center of the northern kingdom that breaks away after the time of Solomon. Whereas Gideon sought to defuse the situation with Ephraim with gentle words in chapter 8, Jephthah doesn't bother. He responds with pride and arrogance himself. I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you didn't show up to help me out, so I went, I took my life in my hand, I went against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. What are you doing here? And so Jephthah and the men of Gilead rise up and fight with Ephraim. And they capture the fords of the Jordan, and Ephraim's army is cut off. So whenever an Ephraimite tries to return home, they ask him to say, Shibboleth. Uh, there's, two, uh, there's two letters in the Hebrew alphabet that look exactly the same, but they're pronounced differently. <laughs> you just put a dot on one side or the other. But apparently the Ephraimites just couldn't pronounce this one letter. So the one's a sh sounds, the other's a s sound. So they say they're asked to say shibboleth, but they say sibboleth instead, and that reveals them as Ephraimites. In one sense, okay, minor difference, but it's also telling us these tribes are are developing their own identities, their own dialects, their own sort of the tribes are not united very well as one people. And even in their pronunciation, they are diverging from each other. Israelite has turned against Israelite. The unity of the nation, well, I thought to say it was gone, but where did when was it ever really there in the first place? And again, the, the silence of God is deafening. He allows Israel to engage in fratricidal war as the fitting punishment for their rebellion against him. The people have received a leader worthy of them. And the one people of God are reduced to a fragmented and divided people looking like the pagans around them. And so we hear that Jephthah judged Israel six years and then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the city in Gilead. We've been hearing, and the land had rest. Where's that? All the previous judges had some reference to and the land had rest, the land had peace. Under Jephthah, there is no rest. Under Jephthah, he judged Israel six years, and then he died. There's a way in which we see a sort of there there was a sort of repentance in chapter ten. We see a There's some sort of gift of the Spirit in chapter 11, but it's all falling apart. It's only in our Lord Jesus Christ that the real and full thing comes. Now, our our narrative concludes with these three more sort of minor judges. We had seen three of them at the beginning in chapter 10. Now we see three more. Ibzan of Bethlehem, which there are two Bethlehems, one's in Zebulun, one's in Judah, and since our author usually, actually always, identifies Bethlehem and Judah as being Bethlehem and Judah, this might be uh, Bethlehem in, in Zebulun. Unlike Jephthah, Ibsen ha- has a, a large family, one that is well connected through marriage. Then there's Elon, the Zebulunite, and he judged Israel ten years, and then he died. The, the, sort of the, the pithiness, and it's sort of like, okay, who 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 was he? he was from Zebulun. Huh, okay. And then Abdon the Ephraimite with his 40 sons and 30 grandsons on 70 donkeys. The pinnacle of peace and prosperity. But a peace and prosperity that groans under its false pretenses. After all, when he he dies, notice that he's buried at Pirithon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Now, I don't expect that any of you are experts in biblical geography. But, okay, you've got Judah here, Benjamin above that, Ephraim above that. And there's there's the Dead Sea here. The Amalekites are over here. Hill country of the Amalekites? What are the Amalekites doing in Ephraim? It's telling us things are mixed up so badly that Ephraim is now considered the hill country of the Amalekites. This is not the way things ought to be. To say that a city in Ephraim is in the hill country of the Amalekites is to say that Israel has adopted the customs and practices of the nations. Foreign peoples, foreign gods are in control of the land. Now, it's, it's awfully tempting to sort of take this in a, in a sort of a despairing, almost sort of fatalistic direction. Judges have all these flawed heroes. Kings has flawed heroes. Church history has flawed heroes. So we're just flawed. But that's not the point of judges or of kings or of church history. The refrain of the book of Judges, which we'll start hearing as we get to the final chapters, is... In those days, there was no king in Israel. The triple cycle of the book of Kings shows us that the the house of Ahab is going to die. The house of Israel is going to die. Even the house of David is going to die. But death is not the end of the story because God himself entered our history in the midst of our flaws and our flailings and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and through his incarnation the son of god has joined humanity to himself why why did god allow these things why did god permit human sacrifice to flourish why did god tell abraham to sacrifice his son because it was only through human sacrifice that man's debt could be paid it was only if one who bore Adam's nature took Adam's curse that our debt could be paid. Now, God was always very clear. You can't do this. You can't offer that sacrifice. he That's why through Moses, he was very clear. Human sacrifice is an abomination to God because if you try to do it, <laughs> You're just going to kill the person and they're just going to end up dead and that's going to be the end of the story. This is why we saw this morning that Jesus is the firstborn of creation who becomes the firstborn from the dead. Until Jesus, there is no firstborn from the dead. Until Jesus, there is people who die. And sure, a few who get temporarily raised for a few more years and then die. But until Jesus and in Jesus, there is now one who has risen from the dead and been seated at the right hand of the Father. There is one who bears our nature, one who shares our humanity, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who took our our guilt upon Himself. God utterly refused to sanction any human sacrifice save one. But even that one, it was not... It was not God who struck him down. This is what Peter will say in the book of Acts. It was like, this happened by the set purpose and foreknowledge of God, but this is what Peter says, you did. You crucified him. Because the greatest act of righteousness on Jesus' part was simultaneously the most heinous act of wickedness on the part of those who killed an innocent man. Not only an innocent man, but one who was God in the flesh. Because the cross was not merely a human sacrifice, it was also a divine sacrifice as God himself in the person of his son took upon himself all the wrath of man and of God. And there's a way in which then we need to see, I mean, Jeff, Jephthah's daughter as one who shows us a picture of Jesus in the wickedness of what her father does to her as he in that moment ceases to be a picture of of Christ, he becomes a picture of Pilate and Herod and all who sent Jesus to the cross. And she becomes the picture of Jesus who suffers innocently without any justice. You see, this is where when we think about all of these flawed heroes of the of the scriptures, that ultimately what makes the difference for us is not that we are any different from them. What makes the difference is that in Christ, there is now the firstborn from the dead sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he has poured out his Holy Spirit on us, which in one sense, again, we have the Holy Spirit. It's like, well, Jephthah had the Holy Spirit and look what he did. But yet, what God has done in Jesus is not just poured out the Spirit on a few people. He's now poured out the Holy Spirit on the whole of his people. And that's why we are called to walk by faith, trusting that that God will continue to do what he's promised in making us more like his Son. That as as we have received the Spirit... In the Old Testament, these judges received the Spirit as basically for the particular purpose of bringing deliverance to God's people. What has God poured out His Spirit in in us for? That we might bear witness to Jesus. Read the book of Acts. When the Spirit is poured out, what do people do? They start talking about Jesus. That's what the gift of the Spirit is for. So that actually, you know, great choice on the songs because, you know, what... (laughs) what was the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? It was that the sons and daughters might prophesy that we might bear witness to the coming of Jesus Christ that all the nations might know that he is Lord. So let's pray. Oh Lord our God, thank you that you have sent Jesus. Thank you that you have sent your beloved son who came in our flesh and who bore in his own body the wrath and curse that we deserved that you sent him to to be that sacrifice that would remove our sin and, and bring us to you, that we might no longer be who we once were, that we might no longer be twisted and perverted and turned away from you, but that we might be made holy and righteous in your sight, that we might walk before you humbly, trusting in your promises, in your faithfulness. Lord help us, because we are weak and frail, and we need Your grace day by day. We need wisdom from on high to to love You and to love one another. Lord, have mercy on us. Grant that we might hear Your voice and and respond with faith and hope and love as we walk before You. Lord, help us to to do this in our in our daily callings, that as we go about the work that You've given us to do throughout the day, that You would help us to to, to to show forth the love of Christ in the way that we relate to those around us, in the way that we speak, in the way that we talk, in the way that we act, that those around us might see the, the glorious gospel of Jesus embodied in us as we endure patiently affliction, as we respond to to the troubles of life, knowing that, that our hope is, is seated at your right hand in your Son who loved us and gave himself for us. Help us, we pray, and bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.